development is less about having an expertise in anything and more about adaptability and the ability to learn on the fly. You're just required to be good at so many things, but not necessarily an expert at any one of them. But you have to be able to synthesize information quickly and, again, for kind of a lack of a better term, be able to speak a bunch of different languages at one time. Welcome to XN State. Where's the greatest opportunity in real estate today? That's what I need to know. We'll hear from industry leaders with boots in the ground and skin in the game. Who's winning? How are they winning? Stick around and we'll find out right here on XN State. Hello and welcome back to XN State. This is your host, JCQ. This week, we bring in Jeff Lahr from Slate Real Estate Partners. At Slate, Jeff is responsible for sourcing, underwriting, and executing new development opportunities in the Austin and Dallas-Fort Worth markets. Jeff's industry experience includes the successful completion of over $500 million in residential and mixed-use projects, ranging from luxury high-rise to garden-style apartments and even retail shopping centers. Today, we discuss how Jeff and his team source and evaluate these opportunities. We discuss Jeff's involvement with Seven, a luxury high-rise apartment building in Austin's 6th Street, and we discuss the impact that COVID-19 is having on architectural design in their projects. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Without further ado, here is today's guest, Jeff Lahr. Jeff, welcome to Exxon State. How are you? Oh, hey, doing well. Doing well. Thanks for having me this afternoon. Thank you very much for being here. How is Austin treating you? Well, treating me well these days. It's, uh, it's interesting. We've stayed very busy through the last few months. It's a little bit odd because we're so busy and also you know, working through the conditions that the pandemic had us in. But all in all, it's, it's great. It's great. That's great to hear, Jeff. I'm very excited about hearing all about your real estate journey and learning from you today. So why don't we jump right into it and begin by hearing a little bit about your journey in real estate and what that's been like and what you're up to right now. Of course, of course. I'll start with uh, the first part of the question. My uh, real estate journey has been an interesting one. It began in 2006. I had just graduated from the MBA program at the University of Texas. And my first job out of that program was with Endeavor Real Estate Group here in town. And I actually started on the retail side of things. I was in a retail development group working on a handful of projects with Endeavor at the time. Most were in Central Texas. Back then, we were spending a lot of time doing mostly target-anchored retail centers, uh, in addition to retail pad sites and um, other smaller retail buildings. It was really interesting. I really enjoyed it. I spent a little bit of time doing that and then had an opportunity to move into the multifamily development world at the tail end of 2011, beginning of 2012. And that was uh, my entree into the residential, multifamily residential world in, in real estate. So I spent several years at a group called CWS, uh, spent a little bit of time at uh, Odin Hughes. These are both uh, Austin-based firms that do work not only in Texas, but uh, in other growing Southeast and Southwest markets. My primary role with both of those groups before joining my current company, Slate Real Estate Partners, was in development, real estate development, multifamily in particular. So that has led to where I am now uh, with Slate. My role currently is to cover not only the Austin market, but the Dallas-Fort Worth markets as well. I identify opportunities, uh, conceptualize them, uh, work on getting them capitalized, and work with our team internally to help manage not only our, our permitting and entitlement process, uh, the design 
uh, aspect of what we do. And then when we get into construction, managing that piece as well, all the way through lease up and then ultimately stabilization. Slate is a merchant build multifamily development company. So the model that we typically follow is fairly short term, well, in our world, short term, from an opportunity identification through all of those aspects of development, and then usually a sale upon stabilization. That's a pretty short version about my past and uh, path through real estate, but uh, that was, um, I guess, a short version of the transition from retail to multifamily development. Sure. Thank you for that, Jeff. You mentioned that basically your job right now is to identify opportunities, conceptualize them, capitalize the projects and navigate the development process. That pretty much sums up the role of a developer, right? Those are the highlights, I guess, the main areas that I focus on. And and of course, there's a bunch of subsets and things that occur within each of those main buckets. But uh, that's one of the nice things about the development world in general is that you're required really to know enough about a lot of different areas so that you can bring an idea from really just that, an idea uh, through a tangible asset and then sale. So, So yeah, I would categorize those as the major buckets. And then again, lots of other avenues in there as well. So what Slate in particular, the company you're with right now, what do you focus on in particular? You mentioned merchant build and in terms of product type and geographic area, what's your focus? Sure. So Slate is a relatively, relatively new company. It was formed a little over four years ago. We're based in Houston. At present, we are working on developments in really all product types in the multifamily arena. So anything from traditional surface park, three-story walk-up garden product, all the way to high-rise. We're under construction on a high-rise in, in Houston at the moment. Personally, I've been very fortunate to have worked on, been able to work on uh, projects across that spectrum. So anything from, again, garden to more urban infill, wrap, podium product. And I've worked on one high-rise myself. I think it's fair to say that the majority of our focus these days is on I would call it wrap product and dense garden product. So that is combination three and four story buildings that look and feel like wrap product, condition corridors, elevator access, buildings that are pushed a little bit closer to the parcel line to make it have a make them the aesthetics appear as, as a more urban product. But those those are surface park. The urban garden, dense garden products are are generally surface product. That is the majority of the product that we're working on, not only at Slate, but uh, but in the Austin office as well. Okay. Yeah, I think I've seen more of that product lately, more towards a shift towards the more urban-like garden-style projects. Still surface park, but more four-story, a little bit more larger buildings rather than a lot of smaller buildings. We've noticed that too, I think for two reasons. The first is it fits and... I'll call it an economic slice of the pie that is relatively new. That is rent levels that can support a product that is, I'll call it a little more evolved or slightly nicer than a traditional garden product, but perhaps not at the level where it could support economically a full structured parking product. So those areas in the markets and submarkets that we work in are have cropped up these days. And so that product fits that economic niche nicely. The other influencer there is that municipalities, in particular suburban jurisdictions, are not only starting to, but have generally moved away from approving traditional garden product. They and I'm painting with a broad brush here, but 
Uh, those jurisdictions like seeing denser product on smaller acreages. And so from a zoning standpoint, it's a little bit easier to get that approved rather than, again, sort of the old school traditional 15 buildings on, you know, 14, 15 acres. So I think those two yeah. reasons in particular are why that urban garden product is becoming a lot, a lot more popular, especially in, in the state of Texas. I agree. And that makes a ton of sense. So, Jeff, you mentioned that your job begins by identifying and conceptualizing a project. So how that process come to be? How does a deal start? It's funny. I'm going to make a little bit of a guess here, but for every 20 or so potential deals that I see, one or maybe two have enough viability that you want to pursue them even further along the conceptual work. So how does it happen? The first thing I look at is, does the parcel size, does the land size that we're talking about accommodate the product type that will be supported by the prevailing rents in a particular area? So it's pretty easy, for example, if somebody you know calls me and says, hey, hey Jeff, I've got this really cool piece of, of dirt and it's in, you know, it's, I'm, I'm making this up, but let's say it's in North Austin and it's about an acre and a half. Well, that won't work. The only the type of product that you would need to, to develop on an acre and a half can only be supported by rents that are today achievable close to the, the city center. So something like that would be a very easy no. It's a, well, right now the rents won't support the product type that you need. And so that, that's an easy no for us. So that's kind of the first thing that I check is uh, land size and is the product type that would be on that land size accommodated by prevailing rents. The second thing I try to look at is what complications exist on the site to bring it from its current condition to receiving a site permit for a multifamily deal. So if there is an existing asset on the site, if it has tenants, if it has multiple tenants, if the site itself has any development challenges that would need to be unwound, easements or deed restrictions or something like that, uh, is the site zoned? If it's not zoned, what are the odds that we can get it zoned? So I try to, the second lens is, what degree of complication exists for this particular site and, and is it been viable? And then the third big thing would be just economics, economics and timing of a potential contract. How much is the seller willing to work with us with respect to not only price, but conditions and terms within a contract, timing of close, timing of earnest money, working together with the seller during due diligence. So I would say those three areas are, are the big three for me. And usually one of those three will, will catch something and make it not viable. But uh, but that's part of the fun is, is catching, the, again, the one or two out of, you know, say 20 or so that, that may work. So every deal begins with a land, right? So you begin by, I guess, sourcing land opportunities and evaluating the land and seeing if you can accommodate one of your product types there. That's fair to say. And whether that land is just a raw piece of land, just greenfield, or whether it has existing improvements on it, et cetera. All of that in my world is quote unquote land. Yeah. yeah, that's typically where something comes in first and it's either marketed by a seller or a seller's broker, or more often for our pursuits, we try to find things that either are not fully marketed or are not marketed at all. Uh, it's a little bit easier to craft a structure and a contract with a seller that may work for both parties and get a little bit creative rather than if you're trying to submit a bid against you know, multiple other, other groups. And the follow-up question to that, of course, is how do you get your hands on those off-market opportunities that aren't accessible to anybody who, who, they're not easily accessible as the marketed opportunities? That's the trick. <laughs> it's, uh, 
I, I'd like to tell you there was a, uh, I've got a, a formula for it, but I, I really don't. It's a combination of a network that I've, I've worked to build over the last 14 years in, in the real estate industry in, in Austin and, and DFW. And being at a platform that allows me to craft compelling opportunities for a seller. So being in a group like Slate, where we've got the ability to not only have a strong capital platform, access to very good debt, and the ability to be creative within the, the confines of a contract, but also, again, just hearing pieces of information from people in my network. Relatively rarely do I have the occasion to contact a seller directly. I would say that happens relatively infrequently. Usually, most of my pursuits are brought to me by folks, again, who I've met over the years that uh, just pick up on really good pieces of information. And what benefits do these sellers get by not marketing their property? Good question, because the, on its face, it would seem obvious that a seller would want to market a property to anyone and everyone and as many people as the seller could get in front of. One of the downsides of that, and that's certainly not a, not a wrong way to do it, especially in a hot market like Texas or Austin specifically, and with the amount of buyers these days. So that, um, that's in no way a bad way to do it if you're a seller. One of the potential downsides, though, is that you can receive offers that seem or sometimes are too good to be true. So you might have a group that gives you a land price or closing and uh, due diligence terms, et cetera, timing terms in a contract that seem great when you execute the deal, but you might find that group retrades you and needs more time or retrades you and needs a lower land price or can't perform and can't deliver what they say they can deliver. So as a seller, you run a higher risk of groups like that getting control of your site, and then you don't have much recourse unless they default. You kind of have to wait. If you get a bad buyer, you might waste a lot of time with that person. They end up not closing, and you got to go through the process again. What I find that some sellers do, and I think this is a prudent way to go about it, is they will align with a seller's broker, a listing broker that can identify the prominent groups in a market that have the ability to develop the product and are, and are product experts, have the ability from a capital standpoint to close on a deal. In other words, you can isolate the three, four, five groups that are very good buyers, have the ability to close and have the expertise. That's not a fully broad marketed deal, but it's a for lack of a better term, it's almost like an invitation bid process. We, we at Slate do that sometimes as well. And that's we, we don't mind doing that because we know that we've got a, a broker that has educated a seller on what's likely to be the most efficient process with, with buyers who can definitely perform. So we do some of that as well. Yeah. I've been surprised in the last few months that we've been searching for opportunities of land to buy. I've been surprised by how educated the land brokers are on the multifamily product itself, because that's what it takes for them to be able to put the piece of land in front of the right buyers. I think that's correct. A, a really good land broker knows the best buyers, knows the buyers that can perform and can relay to a seller the reality of a particular piece of land, a particular submarket, a particular market. That broker can quiet the noise from offers that might seem great on paper, but probably aren't going to materialize into an actual transaction. 
So it's always nice to work with a broker who recognizes those things and can effectively communicate that not only to the seller, but relay the seller's, I'll call it order priority with a wish list to a buyer and fill that easily. That's always a really good process. It's, It's being with a sophisticated broker and or seller is actually a good thing because you can, it, it, the process is just a lot more efficient that way. Certainly. So Jeff, in your years in the industry and development, what's the project that you're the most proud of? Oh, that's a good question. That's a tough one because there are a lot of deals that I have worked on that I've, I really enjoyed working on that were successful for various reasons. But I, I think the one that I, I would point to thus far is the seven apartments here in Austin. That's the one high-rise deal that I worked on. That was a deal that I did with CWS and originally Behringer Harvard uh, out of Dallas. And it was a lot of fun to to work on my first high-rise, to work through with the architect and our internal leasing team, what the best course of action was for programming the units and how do we market these things. And and that that was a lot of fun. So it's also really cool seeing that come out of the ground and you know, 24 stories in the air and you think, wow, it's really, really neat to have developed that. So I'd probably point to that one as, as first, but there's been many, and again, for various reasons, economic success, design success, uh, overcoming multiple hurdles with you know challenges with getting land, getting zoning, uh, getting capital. Tough question to answer, but I, I'd probably point to that yeah, one. Yeah, that's a staple product project in, in Austin, the seven. It looks like it's a beautiful building. I've always wondered, I didn't know that you were a part of that development, but I've always wondered how do you manage an apartment building right on a street that's full of bars and full of just very loud activity a lot of the days in the week, not just Friday and Saturday here in Austin? How did you uh, sort through that? It's absolutely true that we had to work with that as a part of our branding and marketing and leasing strategy. What we chose to do, and I, I, in hindsight, I think this was the right move given the performance of the asset. We, instead of trying to run away from that, we embraced it. We said, okay, what we, our, our tenant, our resident is going to be someone who wants that. They're going to want to be next to these clubs. It may be noisier than other locations, certainly in Austin and other markets, et cetera, but that's okay because this person is A, likely not going to be bothered by that as much. B, might not, it, during times when it's loud, that person's probably going to be out in the loudness, so to speak, having a good time, going to the bars, being outside. So we pivoted that dynamic and turned it into a bit of a marketing tool and marketed the, the units themselves to folks that we believed would appreciate that that scene. That makes a ton of sense. Jeff, you've been in Austin for a long time now. As you said, 2006 is when you started working here in Austin, right? That's correct. Yes. I um, And I've been here a little longer than that. I actually moved here towards the end of 2003 prior to beginning uh, matriculating at uh, UT. So yeah, it's been a while. Mm-hmm. A lot of the people who are in Austin today haven't been in Austin for that long of a period. How have you seen the real estate industry evolve in that time? We certainly had a lot less high rises back then. That's certainly the case. From a skyline standpoint, the city is, wow, not only doubled, it seems to have tripled, even quadrupled the number of buildings in the downtown. So it's been fun to watch. It's, you know, there's pros and cons, I guess, if you're a longtime resident of the city and, and you see it grow up around you. But I'm generally in favor of it. It's, it's you know, economically, it's great for us, brings a lot of really interesting, talented people to the city. From a real estate industry standpoint, the biggest thing that I notice is the number 
and amount the, the number of and amount of competition in our space. So as an example, when I started at Slate, and that was a little over three years ago now, there were several firms, either regional or, or national multifamily development and, and investment firms that covered Austin, either from Dallas or from Houston. And fairly quickly, they started putting maybe one person in town and then that person got a team. And so now it's five people. And so fast forward to today, not only are the a lot more competitors with actual office locations in Austin competing for the same growth, but the size of those teams is a lot bigger. So from a com- competition standpoint, there's definitely been a, a market increase at, that I've noticed. And from a capital standpoint, Austin, I think it's fair to say, has certainly positioned itself as one of the very strong secondary markets in the U.S. And I think you can make an argument that it's it has moved past the threshold and that is now a primary market. So from a capital standpoint, there's a lot more interest. There's a lot more not only depth, but breadth of capital interested in development, acquisition of existing product, et cetera. So the city is just evolving as, as we move forward. I don't think that will slow. I'm sure there will be you know, little dips and sort of minor stagnations here and there. But I, I think I'm bullish on Austin for the next, Austin and Texas in general for the next 20 years. Yeah, I agree completely. If it hasn't passed the threshold of a primary city yet, it certainly will very soon. Agreed. Agreed. So all this competition that has now arised in the market, how have you evolved and how have you dealt with it? Because also a lot of this competition has been focused on multifamily, right? Which is a sector that you're in. Do you see the sector? And well, it's a two-way question regarding Austin and regarding multifamily because the competition has gone a lot more fierce on, on those two. Do you see those performing as strongly in the next 10 years as they've performed in the last 10? I think so. I would be, I'm trying to think of a reason that that might not be the case and none really comes to mind. I, I would be, it would surprise me if either from a competition standpoint or a demand standpoint that the appetite for multifamily in Austin waned to any real degree. I, I think as a start, Austin has delivered a, a good amount of apartment units over the last few years, but I don't, depending, you know, you can, there's a bunch of different metrics you can look at. I don't think we're, we're close to being at a spot where we're oversupplied. Austin also has kind of a built-in restrictor with respect to supply in that receiving a site permit for a submitted site plan takes a long time in Austin, certainly longer than anywhere else in the state of Texas. So that acts as kind of a natural governor on the amount of supply that can be submitted to the city in in any one year. So that I think will continue to help. From a demand standpoint, as long as we continue having population growth, job growth, and not only job growth, but good job growth. I mean, the, the job here in the tech industry and associated industries are, are very well-paying jobs. And that allows for a lot of room with respect to product types, areas of the city that product types will work economically. I just don't know that I see that slowing anytime soon. So yeah. obviously that's going to mean that competition will, will continue to be, to be pretty tough. Uh, how do we succeed in that environment? I think it's a combination of, again, I'm fortunate to have a network of, of industry peers that I've, I've built over the last, whatever that is, 17 years. And I'm at a platform that allows us to perform, not only from an expertise standpoint, but from a, a capital standpoint. We've got a very, a very strong internal capital partner 
that provides our construction loan guarantees and GP equity co-invest. So having that as a platform to work within is, is very helpful. Yeah, surely. How do you compare the multifamily sector to other residential products like residential condominiums or single family or then more recently single family rentals? That's a good question. We, we've spent some time thinking about that internally. I think the single family rental market is not only is it new, but it seems to be growing like wildfire. It's a very interesting investment thesis. And there are a lot of capital firms that are, are well healed that are putting a lot of money into that space. That's probably our biggest competition in my view. I mean, we, we certainly compete with single family purchase and then the condo market as well. But I think the fundamental drivers of apartments, I, I think in Austin will, will remain the same. And that is you, you get a lot of folks with, they're, they're high earners, but they either don't want to own a home for whatever reason, they like the convenience of an apartment, or they don't want to come up with a down payment, or they can't qualify for whatever reason, or they just want job mobility. I think Austin in particular and cities like it attract a lot of those folks. They tend to be 20, 30 somethings, no kids yet. That demographic, I think, will, will remain popular and Austin will remain popular to that demographic. So the demand for single family homes and condos as a direct competitor to apartments, at least in our world, I, I, I'm, le I'm a little less worried about that than I am the, the single family rental market. Again, that's got so much money behind it. And if they can figure out a way to appeal to the type of renter that I just described, that could be a problem for the apartment world. But again, for a city like Austin, where it's hard to put product harder or to put product on the ground, from a permitting standpoint, it keeps everybody tamped down, I think, enough that the odds of oversupply of any of those product types is, is probably lower than it is in, in some other markets. I agree. A lot of times we as developers complain about how tough it is to get something approved here in Austin. But not only is it good for as a barrier to entry and as a constraint of supply, but it also, I think, makes the city in the long term a more pleasant place to live in. I think if you compare Austin's downtown, for example, and even outer submarkets to those of Houston and Dallas and even San Antonio, Austin, I think, beats the rest when it comes to a desirable place to be in. And, it, and it's a lot due to that reason and how strict and unwilling to waver the council and the cities have been here. I agree. You know, there are some challenges with the timing that it takes to get a construction project underway in Austin, but there are a lot of silver linings. You just mentioned a few of them. Another is that, you know, from a cap rate standpoint, Austin assets are valued higher than other markets in Texas and, and similar Southeast and Southwest markets. And that's a that's a big reason why. I mean, it just takes a little longer to, to crank out new product here. So we get paid more on exit in theory for product in Austin. And again, it, it like you said, it acts as that natural restrictor, that natural governor, and keeps demand keeps demand up. So I, I agree. I think when a development company or an investment company can figure out uh, as much as possible, the process in Austin to get a site entitled, zoned, if, ne if necessary, and permitted, create relationships with city staff, create relationships with council members. That, that goes a long way. We know that process and you have proven yourself as a company that can deliver good product and follows up on what they say they're going to do. That's a real good spot to be in. It doesn't make the process 
faster, but I think it can make it easier and more efficient. So we're, again, we put a lot of time and effort and energy trying to make sure that we, we create those relationships and, and work with, with city folks as much as we can. So that, that mm-hmm. helped us. Yeah. We keep touching on relationships um, with the city and, I mean, to find opportunities. That's a big part of, of this business. How do you, what do you do to improve your standing with those relationships or to increase your network that you've managed to grow in the last 14 years up to a point where now it, it's a cost for, it sources a lot of your, your opportunities that you are able to capitalize on today? Sure. Well... I try to do two things, first and foremost. The first is I always want information flow and ideas and feedback to be a two-way street. So I tell that to you know, folks in my network often that, hey, not only you know, am I looking for sites and we need to keep our opportunity flow going, but hey, you know, friend, Joe Smith, if, if you need feedback on how we would look at something or what we think about a product type or what we think about land prices in a submarket or whatever, let me know. I'm happy to tell you what I think. Same thing, you know, city staff or, or, or folks at the elected level at the city. If they have questions about how we think about something, how we look at something, feedback on, you know, again, pricing or timing or whatever, I'm more than happy to share it. I always think it needs to be a that needs to be a two way street. That that way, both parties are getting something out of the relationship. And the second thing that I try to do is is be responsive to people. I know that sounds simple, but I think people appreciate it when you get back to them as quickly as you can. And I also, I'll kind of add to that, it's sort of a subsection, I guess, is um, if something won't work for us, I'll tell people that. I'll say, hey, this doesn't work and here's why. And that doesn't mean that it can't work for others, but it, it doesn't work for us either at the moment or it can't work for us for whatever other reason. So tell, saying no, some, I, I think that goes a long way in validating, well, hey, these guys really think about what opportunities they want to spend time on. And if I hear no a few times, that's okay, because when I hear yes, they, they really mean it. And so really, those two things I, I try to do often. Yeah, I'd, I'd highlight those two. It sounds extremely simple, both of those. And the key there is that they won't get you opportunities a month or two months or even a year from now. But if you do that for 15 years, then you'll position yourself very nicely. So that's the, that's the key there, doing it for long enough. Agreed. Agreed. It also, you know, when you find something that you think can work and you can validate the reasons why it can work, that increases the odds that you're going to be able to do a deal with somebody that brought you something. So all parties win in that case. And so I think I've had success with that. And so, again, both of those are fairly simple, but being consistent with them has has been um, has led to some good outcomes for me. Yeah. Something I wanted to ask you, Jeff, because it's something that's been on, on my mind lately and that something that we're working on. How do you find good people to hire in real estate, in your experience? What's the best way? Wow, that's, um, that's, an- I know that's a tough one. That's, a, that's another really good question. It's interesting. These, there's so much talent, in the, especially for younger folks in, in the real estate industry these days. I mean, I've yeah, had occasion to... to yeah, having informational interviews with, with a lot of folks who were kind of looking forward to do next. And I'm intimidated. I think, well, there's no way I would have been able to hang with these people. <laughs> if you look up at this, you know, you meet 20 of them who are really smart and they can do a lot of things really well. Again, this is this is kind of an old adage, but I think at least for me and, and for our company, personality fit, cultural fit is very important. And someone who might fit with us might not fit elsewhere and vice versa. 
So the first thing that I look for is, you know, can do we do we interact with this person well? Do they have the same personality that we do generally? Are they going to be able to operate in a very entrepreneurial environment? Can they bat to a lot of different fields and are they comfortable doing so? Obviously, the, everybody's got to have a minimum level of knowledge with respect to you know, financial modeling and, and terms and lingo within our industry. So that's kind of the ante to get you to the table. But the other piece is, again, are, are you, can you back to a lot of fields? Are you going to fit culturally? The other thing I would say about development is in real estate development is people tend to look at it as being very sexy in the real estate world. It's like, oh, I want to go to development. And that, that seems really, really fun and cool. And it is for... Again, I'm kind of making this up, but 15% of the time, it's really cool and fun. Maybe 20% of the time. But the remainder, <laughs> there's a lot of, it, it's just a lot of grunt work. You do a lot of kind of boring stuff, not boring, but tedious and things that don't, that aren't really nearly as cool. So one of the things I try to impress upon folks that, that we talk to about coming into our shop is you can know everything there's to know about the capital markets and, and how to underwrite. You can be an Excel whiz and you, you, can, you can know all that stuff. But you also then have to be able to go to unit walks and, and like count the number of toilets and make sure they're installed correctly. <laughs> so there's a lot of that too. But doing all of that really leads to creating value with assets. And that's where you really make your not only your assets shine, but the investment thesis for a deal shine. That's where you go derive value. So that's the other thing I would add for people that, that are thinking about getting into development and, and that we talk to at Slate is got to be willing to get your hands dirty and do stuff that might seem a little mundane or, you know, kind of elementary, but that, that's really, if you know all that stuff and you're able to communicate with all the different parties you have to communicate with, that's where you're able to go drive real value. That's a great answer. I'm glad that, that that's uh, the way you took the question because that was great to hear. But actually what I was asking is more towards how do you hire? I mean, how do I, if I want to hire somebody, how do I get access to the best potential employees for my company? How, in your experience, have you been able to incorporate to your team the best members? I uh, see. So like, like, how do you actually get the bodies in the door and find the best ones? Sure, sure. Exactly. Well, you know, again, I, I think we're fortunate at Slate and in Austin in particular, in that there's a lot of there's a lot of people who A, want to be in Austin, B, want to be in the development real estate world, and then C, want to be in development in particular. So it, go, it kind of goes back to that networking thing. We, we I, I have to go check with the partners. I don't know that we've ever hired a recruiter to bring somebody in. We really don't need, okay. again, are fortunate in that we know enough people in the industry that, and there's enough, I'll just call it supply, i.e. people that want to be here. That if we really needed to find somebody and said, okay, let's car, let's give ourselves, say, whatever, 60 days, 90 days to go find the best person, we would be able to tap our network and our connections and say, we need to go find a whatever development associate or a construction manager, whoever it is. And we'd be able to get folks in the door. And from that pool, we would filter via the things that I just described. So the hires that we have made at at Slate since I've been here have all been that way. They've been organically sourced through our collective network. Okay. So again, we're, we we go back to our network. Now I understand why last time we, we went to had lunch, you said hi to about six people in the restaurant. You you know everybody. Yeah. You know, if you if you hang around a place for long enough, I guess, I guess you pass by enough people. But it, I'm yeah. guessing, but it's, it's true. I mean, engaging with all of those people for that period of time has given me or put me in a position where I'm again I'm lucky to I'm lucky to have that. So uh, 
leaning on that network, whether it's for opportunity identification, whether that's an asset or a development pursuit or human capital is very valuable. So Jeff, as a developer, what are some of the things you do to get better at your job? Or put differently, what are some of the things that you're working to get better at? I guess I'll answer that broadly first, and then and then I'll think of some specifics. I would be the first to admit to anybody, development is less about, in my opinion, it's, it's less about having an expertise in, in anything and more about adaptability and the ability to learn on the fly. And I think that's because we have, you're just required to know, so you're required to be good at so many things, but not necessarily an expert at any one of them. You have to be able to synthesize information quickly and, again, for kind of a lack of a better term, be able to speak a bunch of different languages at one time. So broadly, I would say I, I try to listen. And again, very simple, but listening is and getting data from people and information from people and being able to synthesize it quickly is one of the things that, that helps me day to day. That's kind of number one is, is listen. If somebody has an opportunity, if a construction person is telling you, look, this is what's going on on site. I try to keep my mouth shut. Seriously. I mean, that brings me a lot of info. On a specific basis, I try to, I think the number one thing right now is to learn about the political dynamic in the jurisdictions in which we're active and how that affects code and the openness of a city council to allow for different types of multifamily product. That's, kind of, that's I would call that number one on my list right now. Okay. And it's imp that's important because, again, a lot of these Texas jurisdictions are growing so quickly that the market is outpacing their land code. And so we're living in a situation where city council members and city staff are, are trying to figure out how they deal with that. And that's a little bit different depending on which jurisdiction you're in, city of Austin, any of the northern suburbs, southern suburbs, Dallas has got tons of them. So understanding that dynamic and learning about not only where the political and sort of strategic winds are at the moment, but where they may be shifting is really high on my list. I love both parts of your question. The second one, it's very specific to something that you're working on that you think will lead to more opportunities and that to that very specialized knowledge that a lot of developers don't have. And the other very broad in the sense is to be a good developer. I love the way you put it. You need to know a lot of a little bit about a lot of things, but not necessarily be an expert in on all of them. And I agree that's the main characteristic of a developer. I've realized myself that the better I get at asking questions and the more comfortable I get with not knowing a lot of stuff, the, the better I do my job because it, that makes me ask questions rather than assume that I know the answer. Because a lot of times it's about relying on different experts and different consultants and it's just being, again, it takes us back to the analogy that we often use in development, the conductor of the orchestra, right? That's the an analogy that's commonly used in the industry for the developer. You don't necessarily play any instrument, but you need to know enough about a lot of different things. That's absolutely right. That, that's a great analogy. It's similar to one that, that I've used to explain it in the past is it's, it's almost like being the general manager of a, of a sports team, you know, say the general manager of a baseball team. You might, you might know that your cleanup hitter has a kink in his swing, 
you don't necessarily need to be the person to go work with him to fix it, but you know that it exists and you know that you need to hire an expert to start working with him to fix it. And you know what the downside of not fixing it is and you know what the upside of fixing it is. And so your job is to go solve that problem, but you don't necessarily have to be the hitting coach expert that sits with him in the batting cage and goes and figure out how to you know tweak his wrist movement or whatever. So it's, it's that. You, you just described it as well. It's knowing enough about the situation and formulating potential solutions to it, but not necessarily being the exact person that's going to implement it because you're probably not the expert to implement it. I agree completely. Jeff, so what's next for you and for Slate now that you're personally growing this company that's only a few years old and it's brand new and growing very quickly? What's ahead for you and, and for the company? Well, at the moment, we've got um, several deals that are active in Austin, either under construction or we've got one in lease up. We've got several more in the pipeline as well that we, we believe will be viable deals. And I'm working actively on trying to keep that pipeline full into you know, 21 and 22. We've been, I keep using this word, but it's true. We've been fortunate that Austin's been so busy that we've, as a small company, we've been able to sustain ourselves and, and keep a healthy pipeline with all the activity lately. Houston's a little bit different story at the moment with the hit to oil and gas. It is not as lively as Austin at the moment, but Houston tends to, to yo-yo and snap back pretty quickly. So we do have ongoing projects in Houston, so we'll continue to work on those and, and get those to fruition. I think it's fair to say that we've got designs on continuing, hopefully, our success in Austin and looking at other markets as well. I have spent some time a while at Slate in Dallas-Fort Worth and pursued a couple of deals there. And then Austin got so hot that we, we from a, just a personnel bandwidth standpoint, we needed to really focus on our Austin deals. But I think you'll probably see us go into DFW at some point relatively soon. And then individually within the company, there are folks, myself included, who have done deals and worked on pursuits in, in other markets as well. So they would be the typical markets that other, other groups would be looking at. So high growth markets, job creation, population growth, uh, similar lifestyle to Austin. So at some point, I hope, and call it the near to medium term, we would have our sights set on markets outside of Texas as well. But, uh, but for now, we've got a, a really nice pipeline in Austin and Houston. And with our current setup, that'll keep us busy for a bit. That's good to hear. I'll, I'll be looking forward to witnessing the growth that's sure to come from you and Slate, seeing the tremendously quick growth that you've had in, in a few years and the projects that you have underway right now. Thank you. Yeah. Me too. Perfect. Jeff, are you ready for our fire round? Oh, sure. Yeah, let's do it. Awesome. What's the book that has had the most profound impact in your life? Well, where the Sidewalk Ends. Where the Sidewalk Ends. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'm excited to look that up. Who's it by? Do you know? Uh, it's by an author named Shel Silverstein. There was a book that... Um, I originally read that, I think, when I was in like junior high or I was I was a kid. But it's it's interesting. He was a um, almost like a, the, the, the author, an, an author equivalent of a, of a folk singer. Um, really interesting book. It's uh, it's yeah, look it up. I think I think you'll like it. Perfect. Thank you for the recommendation. What's the single most important skill to have as a real estate developer? Oh, patience, <laughs> patience, patience. I like it. What's the real estate trend that you're paying attention to? The response to COVID and the pandemic. 
I have seen very recently, and it really didn't take long to do this, but uh, a shift in the way that units are designed in particular. So uh, not only unit mixes, which in the past few years have been pretty heavy, especially in markets like Austin, pretty heavy on efficiencies in one bedrooms. Now we're starting to see almost overnight an interest in larger one bedrooms, one bedrooms with dens, a heavier amount of two bedroom units or even three bedroom units in unit mixes, even in products in suburban areas where you might typically see fewer twos, fewer threes. We're starting to see that across the board. So that's an immediate one. Okay. Okay. So you've said you're seeing uh, larger units that's reversing a trend that, as you mentioned, we had been seeing a lot. What do you make of this? Is it because people have spent so much time at home that they need a, a slightly larger spaces? Yeah, that's right. And I should have followed that up with a little bit of color there, but that's exactly right. As people have worked from home a lot more during the last few months, as they have been in tighter proximity and tighter quarters to family members, their spouse, their significant other, there's been a noticeable interest in larger footprints for workspace, for just general room. And I think, think that trend is going to continue, certainly in the near term, as companies become more comfortable with their employees, maybe not working from home all the time, like a lot of folks have been doing lately, mm -hmm. certainly working home more than in the past, the natural response to that is going to be, hey, I need a little bit more room in my, in my space. Not only do I need a place to live, but I also need to carve out a space within that space to work, be productive, have a little bit of elbow room from if I've got a roommate or a spouse or a significant other. So I think that trend will, will last certainly in the, in the near term. Yeah. That's a, that's a great answer. That's certainly a trend to pay close attention to. What's, Jeff, a parting piece of advice for our audience? Oh, um, you know, I would say, I, I guess I'm speaking here to folks who are maybe new to the industry or, or considering getting into development. I'll go back to the, my word earlier is, is, is just be patient. One of the things that I have found in my career is when I get antsy or nervous or anxious that things aren't going down a path that I thought they were going to go down, you know, I'm pretty type A and I want to control a problem and I end up maybe doing a little bit more harm trying to steer something the way that I thought it was going to go rather than just sitting back and saying, all right, something that I wanted to happen didn't happen. But instead of trying to force it to happen, let me just kind of sit back a little bit. If I do nothing, that's not necessarily the end of the world. In fact, I might gain more information that way. I might meet someone or have some opportunity that comes along that didn't exist when I was trying to make the thing happen that I wanted. So whether that is a pursuit, a relationship, a job opportunity, really anything, don't get so discouraged if it doesn't necessarily go the way you want it, the way that you thought it was going to go on the time frame you thought it was going to go. I still try to remind myself of that lesson whenever I start to try to control something. It, yeah. it, it's not the end of the world to... You can still be assertive and working hard towards something and also kind of hang back a little bit and, and let a pitch come to you, so to speak. Yeah, I, I agree. I think to your point, real estate, maybe business and life in general, but certainly real estate, it's a lot about planting seeds and then waiting for probably not even months, but years down the road, some of those seeds start to come to fruition for you to see the benefit of, of those seeds that you've been planting for a while. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. I agree. Well, Jeff, it's been a pleasure having you here. Thank you very much for your time today and for all the gems of wisdom that you brought today and all the experiences 
that you shared with us. It's been a pleasure and I've learned a lot from you. So thank you very much for being here with us today. Absolutely, Jorge. I really appreciate it. I had a great time too. And uh, thank you for uh, having me on. Thank you, Jeff. Have a good one and take care. Okay, you too. Thanks again.